Now, in this story, this dark and awful story, we learn some very important things about God. We learn that he hates sin, that he waits patiently, that he invites repentance, that he gives grace, that he makes promises, and that he provides a way. But as we learn in the next chapter, eventually he closes the door. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God gives grace, he makes promises, he provides a way, but eventually he closes the door. That's a hard truth and an unpopular truth, but as we'll see today in Genesis 6, it is a biblical truth. Old Testament and New, there is a judgment coming, and there is salvation offered, and there are consequences for rejecting that offer and for thumbing our noses at the mercy and kindness of God. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 6. I should probably begin by telling you that I believe that we are dealing here with a universal flood. All I can do in a program like this is tell you where I've landed on some of these controversial issues. I I know that there are good Christians who understand this as a local flood, but I'm not seeing it that way. My study of the text and the language leads me to the conclusion that this is a universal flood, meaning that the impact was total and global in extent and that every human being was killed apart from the eight people who found safety in the ark. However, I don't necessarily think that this is a fellowship issue. I think we can labor together in the gospel regardless of where we land on this particular interpretive issue as long as we agree on this, that this story teaches us that sin grieves God and that God will not tolerate sin indefinitely. He is patient, but not forever. God has a settled antagonism towards sin that threatens to burst forth in judgment. He holds it back, we're told in the New Testament, to give time for people to repent and to get on board with the salvation that he has provided. But he doesn't hold it back forever. Eventually, it comes forth in righteous judgment, and it overwhelms and destroys those who are unprepared. Whatever else we disagree on, we better agree on that if we're taking the Bible seriously. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The first controversy that we have to wade through here in this chapter has to do with the meaning of the phrase, the sons of God. To whom does that refer? There are two opinions out there on this. One is that it refers to fallen angels, and the other is that it refers to regular people, specifically to the sons of Shem in the line of promise who are marrying women that they shouldn't. Now, whenever we meet a phrase in the Bible that we're confused by, the first thing we ought to do is see how that phrase is used in other places in the Bible. So, for example, we might look to Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, where we read this. Now, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. 
There, Job 1, 6 uses the exact same Hebrew phrase, ben ha Elohim, the sons of God. And, and, and there it is a clear reference to angels, including fallen angels, and most particularly the devil. They are collectively referred to there as the sons of God, likely because they were made directly by God. And the phrase is used in that way in other places in the Bible. But nowhere is it used in the Bible to refer to regular people or believing mankind or anything like that. So if it means that in Genesis 6, then it would be the first and only time that it means that in all the Bible. Which is why early Jewish writers, along with the majority of early church fathers, taught that however hard it is for us to imagine, these words refer to demonic human alliances. Now, not everyone agrees with that. John Calvin, for example, was sure that this was referring to human intermarriage between men of faith and the daughters of unbelievers. He said, for marriage is a thing too sacred to allow that men should be induced to it by the lust of the eyes. The sons of God did not make their choice from those possessed of necessary endowments but wandered without discrimination, rushing onward according to their lust. So Calvin thinks that the problem here is that men were attracted to the wrong female endowments. Well, I think it would be hard to argue with that. But I just don't think that's the point being made in this particular text. Now, I've gone back and forth on this one myself, but I think that I have to side with the majority interpretation because I think it's the one that best aligns with how the New Testament apostles we're reading this story. In 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 6, the Apostle Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. So the common theme there in 2 Peter chapter 2 is that God knows how to punish those who indulge in lust and defiling passion and who despise authority. Jude 1.6 talks in a similar way, saying, that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the New Testament apostles seem to think that what is going on here in Genesis 6 is that fallen angels are crossing the boundaries that God has established and are engaging in sexual intercourse with human women. And This further exacerbates the rebellious state of the human soul, such that, as Genesis 6-5 goes on to say, the wickedness of man becomes great in the earth, and every intention and every thought of his heart is only evil all the time. 
So the influence of demons pushes men further in the direction they were already leaning, and a line is crossed, and judgment is summoned down to the earth. I think that is our best reading of this text. Verse 3 goes on to say, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, this is the second controversy we have to work through, but this one, thankfully, is a little bit easier. While it is possible that the 120 years here refers to the shortened human lifespan after the flood, it is more likely that it refers to the time that it took to build the ark. Peter seems to understand it that way. He talks about the call that went forth for repentance during that time and says that it was going forth while God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That's 1 Peter 3.20. So Peter seems to understand that 120 years as the patient enduring of God who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think the idea here is that God warns, God waits, and then eventually God does exactly as he promised. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, what you believe about this verse probably depends on where you landed with respect to the first controversy in this chapter. Many folks understand the Nephilim as being the hybrid offspring of the human and angelic alliance, whereas other folks assume this means simply great men, warriors, soldiers, and therefore typical of the violence that was on the earth at the time. Again, probably not a fellowship issue. Verse 5 goes on to say, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Pastor Paul, you've already walked us through a couple of the controversies surrounding this passage, the extent of the flood, the identity of the sons of God, and the Nephilim. But this, in my mind, is the biggest controversy of them all. The idea that God would decide to blot out every human being, every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth because of sin. How does that square with the mercy and kindness of God that we see in Jesus Christ? That's a great question. And I think you could even say it is the question. This is one of the fulcrum questions upon which orthodoxy turns. How do we square the holiness of God and the mercy of God? Now, it isn't fair to say, as is sometimes said, that this is a conflict between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, as if God were only holy in the Old Testament and only merciful in the New. But that is demonstrably untrue. This tension is recognized and explored in both sides of the Bible. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 11:22, "Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off." So there's a passage in the New Testament 
that captures exactly the tension we're talking about here. And Paul is telling his people to pay attention to both sides of this continuum. Don't ever forget that God is severe. He is the God of Genesis 6. He is the God of the flood. He is the God of the final judgment. He is the God of hell and the eternal fire. And he is the God of kindness. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of arcs and crosses and ways of escape. He is the God of salvation, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Hmm. Now, you compared there the ark in Genesis 6 with the cross of Christ. That's a fairly common comparison, isn't it, even in the New Testament itself? Yeah. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, Peter really develops this comparison. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. 1 Peter three eighteen to 22 So Peter says these are really the same event. They are intentional parallels, and more than that, more than just similar symbolism, he says it is the same spirit wrestling with lost sinners in both stories. He says that Jesus, in the Spirit, was proclaiming the gospel in the time of Noah. He was inside Noah's preaching, urging people to repent of their rebellion and to come inside the ark. It was Jesus preaching to human hearts in bondage to sin, pleading with them to embrace the means of God's salvation all the way back in the Old Testament. But according to Peter, only eight people responded to that entreaty. Eight people went inside the ark and embraced the mercy of God and were spared from the outpouring of his wrath. Don't be like that, Peter says. Come to Jesus now and be saved. And then he compares New Testament conversion to this Old Testament story in Genesis 6. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter says that when you get baptized, you are reenacting your own personal version of the flood. If you are in Jesus, then you pass through the waters of death and judgment, and you rise up again into eternal life. Now, he doesn't want them to hear that in a ritualistic sense, so he very quickly clarifies. He says, Baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt, not as a mere ritual, not because the water in the tank has magic sin-erasing power. No, no. Baptism only works if it is truly an appeal to God through Jesus Christ. If, when you go under the water, you are saying, Lord, save me through the life and death of Jesus Christ, then when you come up out of the water, you are truly joined to Christ in new and everlasting life. That's what Peter is saying. Christian conversion is a reenactment of this story. It is how we choose the kindness of God and are saved from the wrath that we deserve as fallen sinners. 
Amen. That is so good. I love how the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament really do go together. It's not two different stories or one story that corrects the other. It's one story about one God who is who he is and who does not change or vary from the very first page of Holy Scripture. That's exactly right. God is who he is, and he is good. He is holy. He is of pure eyes than to look upon sin. And he is merciful, he is kind, and he makes a way for sinners to be saved and spared and restored unto newness of life. Mm, Thanks be to God. All right, let's jump right back into the text at verse 5. Now, what does it mean to say that God regretted? Can, Can a God that knows the future and that knows everything and that does everything right regret? That is hard to wrap your head around. I've read a number of explanations for this language, but I still haven't read a better one than Matthew Henry's from more than 200 years ago. He said it this way. He said, These are expressions after the manner of men and must be understood so as not to reflect upon the honor of God's immutability or felicity. Immutability means his unchangingness. This language does not imply any passion or uneasiness in God. Nothing can create disturbance to the eternal mind, but it expresses his just and holy displeasure against sin and sinners, against sin as odious to his holiness, and against sinners as obnoxious to his justice. End quote. I think that's about all there is to say about that. I think that says it very well. Now, thankfully, there is good news in the very next verse. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word ken can also be translated as grace, as indeed it is in some English translations. Either way, God helps a certain family in such a way as to position them to be the recipients and the vessel even of his salvation. Thanks be to God. Verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, just so that we can keep our theology straight, just notice that the Bible speaks about the grace and favor and help of God to Noah before it says that Noah was a righteous man. Grace always comes first, Old Testament and New. Verse 10 says, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
Now, again, that sounds like a universal flood to me. I, I won't stop fellowshipping with you if you see that differently, but I don't see how those words can mean something other than what they say. Verse 18 goes on to say, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now let's just pause long enough to notice that salvation is always by a gracious covenant of God. God makes a promise, and God makes a way. Thanks be to God. Verse 19 says, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, in this story, this dark and awful story, we learn some very important things about God. We learn that he hates sin, that he waits patiently, that he invites repentance, that he gives grace, that he makes promises, and that he provides a way. But as we learn in the next chapter, eventually he closes the door. Lord willing, thanks be to God. Wow, I love that last verse in Genesis chapter 6. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That isn't why Noah was saved, but it certainly does demonstrate his faith in God, doesn't it? Absolutely. Faith often shows itself in tangible, visible actions. And that is how the New Testament apostles interpret the obedience of Noah. In Hebrews 11, for example, in verse 7 and following, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the gospel really is the same in the New and the Old Testament. Absolutely. Old Testament and New, people are saved by grace through faith because of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for that, and thank you, listeners, for joining us again today. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet.